0: Welcome to this bonus episode of the Film Score Podcast. Today, I'm not joined by a composer. Instead, I'm joined by fellow film music fan and writer, Blake Fischera. Blake and I spend most of the conversation talking about his new book, Scored to Death 2, which features over a dozen long-form written interviews with some of horror's greatest composers, both past and present, including names like Michael Abels. Bear McCreary, Charlie Clauser, who did the Saw films, Brad Fidel, and a whole bunch of others. It's honestly such a interesting read and goes more in-depth into some of these composers' careers than probably any other interviews out there. Blake and I chat about his book, as well as these composers, film music in general, and it's just two people nerding out about something they really like. Blake also has a podcast, also Scored to Death, in which he similarly interviews film composers, primarily horror ones, and it's a slightly different format than mine, where they are, again, significantly longer and go into a really deep depth. I try to listen to it when I can and I highly recommend it. You can also find Blake on various social media at Scored to Death and as always you can find me on there too at The Film Score. Now I hope you enjoyed this interview and of course there are plenty more composer interviews to come and if you enjoy it don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating, or review, and all that jazz. Now Let's get down to business. Blake, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: I have been digging into Scored to Death 2 a lot in the last, I don't know, two weeks since I first got it, and I've, I'm really enjoying it.
1: Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it, uh, it's it been a bit of a crazy journey for the first book and then getting to the second book. But uh, yeah, I'm really proud with how it turned out. I feel like it has a very different feel than the original book which i like about it i'm hoping that other people like it too
0: i'm sure they will i think it's it's a staple for anyone who's into film music or horror film or really anything created
1: yeah i mean that's one of the things i feel i discovered with the first book which was like i felt like having it be skewed towards horror had both pluses and minuses because you know the horror audience uh, is very passionate and they love their horror music which is great and i love that about it especially because i'm part of that community but to me the books are way more than that they are so much about just creative process and really horror movies are probably half of what the book's actually about. It's more just about film music and creative people working in art and craft and all that kind of stuff. Fortunately, it's hard to, kind of sell that to the people that might be interested in it that aren't horror buffs but yeah I try to stress that about it because it is just about amazing artists and how great they are at their craft
0: well, yeah and you read the interview you did with Bob Colbert so much of that is just him telling stories of working with Dan Curtis in particular and just like how they collaborated and collaboration like that that exists in any job any creative field anything I get how it's a hard sell to other people, but at the same time, if those people pick it up and actually dive into it, it, you know, it should be interesting. But talking about the horror community and getting into that, taking a few steps back before these books even existed, how did you get into horror in the first place?
1: Well, that is a uh, that is a long road. I think part of it was I grew up uh, in the eighties and nineties, and I feel like that was a really good time to grow up if you were willing to accept horror. You had television shows like Tales from the Crypt and Tales from the Dark Side and remake shows of things like Twilight Zone in the 80s and Outer Limits in the 90s. There was Friday the 13th, the series. There was a very short-lived show on Fox that I loved, which only lasted about a season called Werewolf. There was just, it was a good time to be a kid, and be fascinated with horror because it was on television. You didn't even have to go anywhere for it. Plus, I called my generation the video store generation because we were basically, I was born in the late 70s. So my entire childhood, into my early adulthood, we had video <laughs> stores and access to renting movies. And then that kind of changed and streaming became the thing. That all kind of lent itself to it. And then the big pivotal experience was in the late, in the mid-90s, renting john carpenter's in the mouth of madness Hmm. it opens with like this very rocking like metal cue as the books are being printed and that kind of opened the doors to me falling in love with horror film music because what happened with that movie was it i went out and i bought the score and from that i then bought john carpenter's greatest hits and halloween and then the geek in me I then wanted to know everything I could find out about him so it was like going to the library and looking at things and then discovering that the guy didn't just direct this movie but he directed all these movies that I remembered as a kid so it was like Christine and They Live and The Thing even Starman which isn't a horror movie it was like oh my gosh this guy's directed all these movies that I've kind of loved this whole time and never realized that that opened my mind up to horror in a more serious way and then and also the music so then when I went to film school my budding interest in horror then exploded and so the best thing about film school for me was getting to be introduced to things that my peers were interested in I caught a perfect storm of of horror for maybe and also being in an, an art film school where everybody was talking about filmmakers like how Harley I think I feel like horror was a little bit of a rebellious thing for me it was like so like I got very into even more so into John Carpenter, but then I got very into like Dario argento and Lucio Fulci and started to fall in love with the music of Goblin and Fabio Fritzi. And so the love for horror film music was very much tied to my love for horror. The other thing is that film music in general was always just kind of a thing for me because my dad just had it or his record collection and Mm. we had some of his records at my house and also growing up in the 80s and the 90s John Williams was like I was in love with Star Wars and Indiana Jones and I still have like my original vinyl of the Star Wars score and so listening to film music always just was like other music to me I remember a period in the 80s where we would listen to the Chariots of Fire score while we ate dinner (laughs) 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 it was just like on in the back ground. And so my love for film music was always tied to the movies, but also just tied to, I guess, the fact that my, my parents were open to film music and liked film music. And then when the horror connection happened with John Carpenter and then later the Italian composers, it just all connected for me. And I started the book in the first book in 2013. And so then I just had all that period of time of loving horror movies and loving the music until I finally decided to try to find out more about that stuff. That's when the first book started.
0: So that makes a lot of sense as far as some of the composers you had in the first book. I mean, you had John Carpenter and Alan Howarth and Fabio Fritzi, Goblin, Claudio Simonetti. Like Those seem to be all of the guys that you grew up listening to and suddenly here you are talking with them. I mean, what was that experience like?
1: The creation of the first book started really because I just wanted to know more about Goblin. And in America at that time, and there just wasn't a lot of information about them. It was like, I want to find out more about Goblin. Like, how do I go about doing that? And what's like my excuse for it other than just personal (laughs) gratification? At the same time, I discovered in that pursuit, I bought a book from England And it was like half the book was about the use of sound in Dario Argento's movies. And then half the book was interviews with Claudio Simonetti, but also like Fabio Fritzi's daughter, a weird selection of people. But I got that book and it just wasn't what I was looking for. And it didn't have the information I wanted to know. Basically, the first book came out of like, I want to know this information. I can't find this information maybe I should just pursue this information and find it out for myself. So I went and I found other books where they interviewed composers. There's a great book, I think it's called The Score, and that has a great interview with Christopher Young, who I interviewed Mm -hmm. for the first book, and also Howard Shore, who I'd love to interview uh, someday. But it wasn't focused on horror. And it also was a little too much about music theory. Some of it was just too much for me. And so when I discovered, like, this information wasn't even in these other books. So I just decided, like, okay, what do I want to know? And then it was like, okay, who do I want to talk to? That was kind of a whole process in and of itself. But the thing I find funny, in it, and I've told this story before, is that reading these other books kind of intimidated me about, like, interviewing these people. Because then I was like, well, if this is what these kinds of books are like, and they're about music theory, maybe I'm not the guy to do this as an interviewer so i so i discussed it with a friend of mine who is my ally in horror film music who we used to play air drums and air keyboard to fabio Fritzi music while we watched goblin when we were in college and basically through talking to him i realized like okay you know what i'll do i'll interview like two or three people and if i feel like there is a book worth pursuing in those interviews then i'll keep going and if not I'll have those interviews and maybe I can publish them. Thinking that most people would say no, and you've probably discovered this yourself in in, in approaching composers, (laughs) that composers are like the nicest and most generous people alive. And I think cherish the opportunity to talk about their work. Thinking most people would say no, I, I contacted like seven composers. And of course, they all said yes. So then I was like, okay, now I have commitments by like seven composers. So I guess I'm just writing this book now. Then I just jumped in. And the uh, decision process for the first book was, one, who do I love? Who do I want to talk to? Who do I want to know about? So that was like Fritzi and Claudio Simonetti. And then second criteria was like, whose music do I love? Which was like also part of trying to get some of the big films and the big series you know, like Nightmare on Elm street and Friday the 13th, which also was at the same time was the music I love too. So it wasn't like that big of a discrepancy. And then the third criteria was trying to put together like an eclectic group of people, whether it's style age. So I tried to get some younger guys like Joseph Bashara and Nathan Barr and Jeff grace, some Italian guys, some American guys, Stylistically, someone who's known more for orchestral scores and people who are known more for synthesizers and stuff like that. So, those were like the criteria for the first book. And that's really just like how the whole journey started. What basically happened was I loved doing it so much that I didn't want to stop. And after the first book was done, and I just loved talking to these guys, uh, especially for the first book, because unfortunately, uh, film scoring and especially film scoring for horror mm-hmm. is a bit of a it's a bit of a guy's club my publisher wasn't that interested in a second book right away they're like let's wait a year to see how it does before we commit to another book so i waited a year so 2016 the book came out at that point like john carpenter was touring and it kind of coincided with like this perfect cresting of like the movement of horror film music on vinyl and people touring uh, i got very lucky that I ended up being a part of that. So I waited a year, and then when the year happened, I said to my uh, publisher, so what do you think? And they're like, no, we don't think so. So that's why I started doing Scored to Death, the podcast. And then eventually, out of the podcast in a weird way, the second book came about. And then that book had its own criteria of why those people are in the book. I don't know if you want to go into that. (laughs) I've been talking for a long time.
0: I do. I mean, I, I do find it interesting the different composition of composers that are in there. But yes, as far as the changing landscape, and it's one thing that you do mention in the second book, it's kind of a recurring question of this burgeoning interest in, I mean, I would say horror film music in general. I see quite a lot of interest in film music broadly, but you mention all the time the interest in horror film music it has been fun to see and it seems crazy seeing John Carpenter and Goblin going on tour and it seems like it's really set up the second book really well
1: yeah there was you know it was obviously starting when I started the first book it's kind of started some of that made inspiration I talk about this in the preface of the first book was like I saw Goblin play live And seeing them play live just, like, ignited that passion of that music again. I'd go through these periods over that extended period of time in between discovering them in my late teens and starting the first book. And then seeing them play live just really, like, I I basically didn't listen to anything else for like the next three years. The only time I listened to other kind of music while I was writing the first book was when I was researching the composers. <laughs> In my spare time, if I was listening to music, I was listening to something Goblin related <laughs> because that concert had such a big impact on me. So obviously it was happening. The landscape had changed such that a group like Goblin, whose really heyday as a band was the late 70s. And had never toured America, it only ever toured Europe. And through the power of the internet and the passion of fans and social media, made them popular enough that they could tour Japan and America and sell out shows, which is crazy. So things were already, the wheels were already turning. I didn't really realize that I was influenced by that, or at the very least, a part of that separately until the book came out and it was like everything had changed it felt to me that an interest in film music and especially horror film music had like exploded i was very fortunate timing for the first book and is one of the reasons why a second book suddenly seemed like a good idea to my publishers <laughs> after a period of time had passed
0: and it makes sense too because i think horror more broadly is being taken more seriously in the critical landscape as well. Because you you mentioned earlier how being into horror film was kind of a a rebelliousness in film school. And, I mean, historically horror films have basically been shut out of various awards. And then you have Jordan Peele's Get Out was... I mean, wildly commercially popular, but also really critically acclaimed, as was Michael Abel's score. And not not saying that's the only critically acclaimed horror film score but it's it's being taken more and more seriously in that landscape and so it's really fun seeing all of that starting to come together you had michael abel's in your second book too which leads into the next question of what your different criteria was for finding composers to include in that second book
1: the Criteria for the second book is basically like a fourth criteria was added. So I had like, who do I want to talk to? Whose music do I love? An eclectic group. Diversity was big. Even more so, I think, in the second book. And then the fourth criteria that was added was like, what can I do in this book that I didn't do in the first book? That added like... Adding Holly Amber Church, for instance, who's a female. So far, it's like the podcast, the books, they're all, they've been a sausage party. (laughs) You know, like I need to find a woman who does this so I could talk to them about it and their work. And luckily, Eric Woods, who does uh, cinematic sound radio, uh, he and I were having a discussion in DM and he brought her up and I had never heard her stuff. And so I went and I checked out her music and I really liked it. It was like, oh, this is great because, yes, she's a woman, but like, that's not why I need to talk to her. I need to talk to her because, like, I love the music. And hopefully that's going to change very quickly. But when I interviewed her, like, she's also working almost primarily in like this very independent horror world. So it was like, oh, great. Because that's kind of like what Jeff Grace did for the first book. Jeff Grace was working with like Glass Eye Picks and Larry Fessenden. And he was working on films that were great, like uh, House of the Devil and stuff like that. But he was working in a smaller budget, with smaller budgets on quote unquote smaller films. So Holly checked off a ton of boxes for me. And then it was like, what else doesn't the other book do? Well, like I interviewed Italians in the first book. For me, what's the other like region of horror that I love. And it was Asia. So that's why I approached uh, Koji because I loved Takashi Miike's movies and Kenji Kawai. It was like Ring, the power of the ring, the ripples <laughs> that Ringu made and American cinema and horror in general were so vast that we still are trying to mimic that kind of in horror today in a lot of ways. And then it was like, as I was finishing the first book, It Follows came out, and I loved Disaster Pieces' score, and Get Out came out, and I loved Michael Abel's music. So I felt like how I can make this book different was weigh it a little more, skew it more in the direction of quote-unquote contemporary composers and have less composers whose careers kind of started in the 70s. Because as a kid of like the 80s and the 90s, there's a lot of nostalgia there. But I got to kind of, like, I feel like that was a way of having these two books be more of a, a whole exploring things. When you combine them two, it's like, it's a much more of a, a range of age, but also like Rob, uh, Robin Kuder, who's a French composer. Like when I saw the, Mania, the remake of Maniac, and I love the original Maniac, and that's one of the reasons why Jay Chataway, who did the music for the original Maniac, is in the first book one of the things i loved about the remake was rob's score to it and for the same reasons that i loved jay chataway's score for the original which like it added a lot of heart and emotion to this very crude and scary story about this killer by the time i started working on the second book it was like stranger things and the whole synth wave thing was happening that's one of the things that's different about it is it's much more rooted in what's going on now and we still have Richard Band and we're still talking about like day of the dead and reanimator and brought up Bob Cobert. He's, he was 95 when I interviewed him. I mean, his, the bulk of his work was in like the sixties and the seventies and the seventies. So it was like having him in there was great because it just kind of like took me back even further than the first book did. Those were basically what I was aiming for. All the same criteria, but like, how can this be like really a good companion to the first book by covering ground that the first book doesn't cover?
0: I've really enjoyed that because there's not a huge age difference between us, but you know, we still grew up in slightly different times. So, sure, through like my mid-teens was when the video stores were still around. I had a blockbuster. I think exactly one and a half miles from my house, and I'd ride my bike there all the time. Then when I got into college, like that was dead and the streaming was starting to come out you know it was just a little different so obviously I grew up with like some of the main 80s horror series but then at the same time I was also introduced to all sorts of just like random weird things and so I've had a slightly different formative years of film and of horror so it was so cool seeing some of these different names on there also like Koji like I'm a relatively big Takashi Miike fan like he's done I don't know 200 movies or something so (laughs) I've only seen a really small amount but first off I was so happy that there were some Asian composers in there because I think especially in the U.S. it's almost like a black box where you just there, There's so little interface between the U.S. and, I'd say, Asian film music broadly, not just Japan, but Korea, China, too. So it was really cool seeing that representation. But then also, for me, reading about the composer who did Rainy Dog and Audition and Tsukiyaki Western Django. Like, he doesn't talk about it, but yeah, just having seen that when I was a teenager and then being like, oh, this guy did that and he did... 10 other movies that I really liked. I don't know. I just thought it was really cool to have those in there.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, you know, with the language barrier, those interviews are not... They feel very different than the rest of the interviews, and they're not conversational, really, and they're much shorter. But at the same time, as an interviewer, that's disappointing because, you know, there's so much I'd like to know about them Mm -hmm. and their music. But the balance of that was... In trying to research those interviews, really discovering that there's nothing by way of like interviews or anything in English about them. And so, you know, on one hand, I would have loved to have those interviews be much more like the other books, uh, the other interviews in the book, but I'm very thrilled that at least I get to bring something about them to horror fans here or English language uh, horror fans because there really is not like you're saying there's really not much to go on other than the movies and the music themselves and they're with streaming and whatnot they're much more available now than they were when I discovered them so the movies and the music in the movies is here But uh, the information behind that is still a bit of a mystery, and, and I just wanted to try to shine the tiniest bit of light, as much light as I could, on what was going on with those guys, because they're doing amazing things there. But Asian, I think Asian horror has influenced american horror in the last 20 years oh yeah and it's in such important ways that i I was thrilled to get anything i could out of them and i think the information that's there is interesting and we do get to learn a little bit about the way they look at things and some of it's cultural which kind of i think comes out in in their answers and but the way they talk about it i think you can see that it's just also like how they approach things is culturally very different and i i just find that all fascinating and i'm just thrilled that they trusted me enough to do this interview even if it was like having questions translated into japanese and sent to them and then getting back japanese answers and having to have them translated and then considering that it takes up such a small amount of the book it was the most work that i did for the whole book so i'm thrilled to to be able to present something about those guys
0: hopefully it's enough of a bite to at least get some more people interested in it. Because all it takes is growing interest, and then more information gets out there, more things come out. So hopefully it snowballs a little bit, because I'd love to... See and and read more too and and honestly, I'd love to have more of the music itself available as well watching some older Japanese Yakuza films or like Chinese kung fu films There are tons of those and some of them have some really great music or some really great cues But you can't find it anywhere. It would be cool to have more and more available to the Western audience.
1: Two things about what you just said. One, one thing I did, which was very gratifying about the first book
0: was I got a lot of feedback
1: from readers through social media that discovered composers that they never really checked out before through reading about them in the book. And a lot of people would like listen to their music while they read the book, or they'd then go find some of the specific cues they talked about in the book and listen to those cues. And so I'm thrilled that people that didn't know some of these composers' music discovered their music and are now fans of their music through the book. And then the other part of what you said is Hopefully, if, you know, whether the book has any part thing to do with this eventually or not, I don't know. But if we can show through social media or whatever that there's interest in this music, you know, if there's money to be made, somebody's
0: going to want to make it. Another composer that I'm I'm happy that you have on there is Rob. That's someone who, I think he's been doing a, like a lot of really good work over the last few years. Like, earlier this year, he did Gretel and Hansel. Two years ago, he did Revenge, which had a, just this really pounding synth score. And he's done quite a few other things. But I think being French and kind of generally doing more independent films, he hasn't had as much exposure into the U.S. I'm hoping that as those works pile up and having some more exposure in your book that he actually becomes a little well more or a little more well known because he's really good
1: yeah i like rob a lot and i I think in my introduction to his chapter i discuss going to see the maniac remake and having a lot of reservations about it because of my love for the first book and then the minute like his music kind of comes on in marriage to what's going on in the image, not specifically the music, but like how it's married to what's happening. It was like, oh, OK, you've piqued my interest enough that I, my guard went down. I'm like, you, you're, I'm going to go on this ride with you. So Rob's interview was one of the interviews that originated as part of the podcast. In between interviewing Rob for the podcast and interviewing Rob for the book, he had done gretel and hansel so there's he talks about gretel and hansel in the book which he didn't do in the podcast but i approached rob to interview him for the podcast and he was interested and he's like i'm going to be in america where are you and i said i'm in new york he's like i'm going to be in new york uh so and so date he's the touring keyboard player for like a french band and they were going to be playing in brooklyn uh, a couple of dates so he was in new york and he really wanted to do the interview in person. Uh, he's the one interview in the book that is done in person. <laughs> <laughs> and we did it at his hotel. We found, I went and I asked the people who ran the hotel. It was like this hip hotel in the Lower East Side of New York. And I said, is there any place where I can sit down and do this interview where we're not going to be interrupted? So they took me up to this event space that's lined from floor to ceiling windows, looking out over New York City. You can see the... Uh, Empire State Building. It was like a sunny day, and it's just like all these couches lined up, and we just sat down in this giant room, just the two of us. I set up the mic. We're on these couches. He's eating like a scone and having a cup of coffee, and we just sat there and we chatted for like 90 minutes or something like that. And I feel like two of the reasons why that interview feels a little different than the rest of the interviews is one, that. That experience of doing it in person. And two... Is we were both born the same year. So even though he was in like Paris and I was here in America, there really was this shared childhood experience that I discovered in doing. I have this other podcast that I've been doing for about six years called Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Where we take like a loving and nostalgia look back in movies and we do some contemporary movies and we do some movies from like the thirties and stuff. But one of the things I discovered in doing that podcast and the feedback we get from listeners is it was like we really did all share a childhood like we remember all the same toys and we remember all the same commercials and remember going to the video store we remember the box covers on those video stores so rob's interview ends up becoming in the beginning of it we talk like at length about going to video stores and like how the imagery on the boxes captured your imagination and and when i was doing the book i was like is this going to fit or is this going to be like really weird in the book but when i went back through and i was editing that interview i realized like it all fits because it's all part of his passion for cinema and why he loves scoring it. All comes from the same place of why I love interviewing these composers, which is like it all starts in childhood and how the, the our budding interest in cinema and horror all started with discovering these films, whether it was on television or in a video store. And it was the seed that got planted that grew for us into our, our mutual passion for this music. So... I always joke with him when we interact via email, like, I feel like we're friends, even though we only ever met that one time, (laughs) because we shared, like, what I feel like this very intimate conversation about our childhood. We learned so much about each other in that interview, so, like, I I always have, like, a very fond feeling towards Rob. But, yeah, he's doing really cool things, and he's got a very specific style. That you can hear in some of his things that he steps out of that style and other things like most composers do. And uh, it was really fun to get to talk to him. And also you learn about like how the relationship between directors and composers is different in France than it is here in America. Like, it just seems like it's much more of a intimate relationship. The composers seem to be in on the movies, even before the scripts are even written. Sometimes that happens here in the States, but talking to all these composers, you realize much more of the norm is like, okay, you got six weeks. I need a score. Go. <laughs> and so it seems like the composers are much more of the overall creative process in France. And so it's interesting, you know, you brought up Bob Colbert and, His relationship with Dan Curtis, that director or producer-composer relationship is something I'm very interested in. And so whenever I get the opportunity to talk to them about how that works for them, especially in cases where it's overseas... Uh, where that relationship might be different, or in the cases of, like, John Harrison working with George Romero, when it, when it's, like, directors who are icons in the genre or people I really appreciate, or Brad Fidel talking about him with working with Wes Craven and Jim Cameron. I always try to say, going back to what we were saying earlier, like, you don't have to just be interested in the music, I think, to get something out of the book. So, uh, you know, I'm very proud of how these things have turned out i hope that uh, they live up to the potential of the readers that i feel like the information because it's not you know it's obviously it's partially me but to me like these books also belong to the composers like it's their wisdom and their knowledge and i just happen to be the one lucky enough to be able to give them a vessel a medium to share that knowledge but i always think of them as like their books they're the ones that deserve the support and deserve to be film music as as you know as a film music lover is very underappreciated in the grand scheme of things of, uh, of the filmmaking process and so part of the passion of the books and extending past the first book was also like these composers deserve more credit part of my mission is doing that
0: and I don't want to keep coming back to the Bob Cobert interview but I, I can't help myself it was and I'll, I'll preface it I have not seen a single thing he's worked on. I don't know if I've even heard of anything that he's done. And yet, and I don't know, it's a 30 or 40 page interview. But I was just glued to that one. You know, with what you're saying about giving them credit and kind of supporting the book is supporting these composers. I mean, you you see it in the way that he's talking, where he worked in film and TV for decades and decades. But that was his opportunity to kind of relive 40 years of work and he mentions it a couple of times where it's like i haven't talked about this in so long but it was just a flood of memories coming back and especially now with him having passed away recently that's like the memorialization of his work in his own words i find him so interesting and i love just how blunt he is (laughs) it's an understatement (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's a great interview to read on its own, but then when you add that context, it gives it so much more impact, too. Man, I, I really appreciated that part of it. I haven't
1: done a ton of interviews for the book, but I'm glad to see that like his interview comes up from the people asking the questions, not just by me. Because I feel extremely honored to have been able to, one, get to know him a little bit uh, over the, his last year. Life, like I said, he was 95, I think, when I interviewed him, and he passed away in February of this year to the uh 2020 at the age of 96. So, one, I feel blessed to have gotten to meet meet him, even if it was just over phone, over the phone, because we talked many times. And I feel very honored that he trusted me to tell his story and that he was because he was reluctant at first, and then he came around. Not even from pushing by me. I was like, okay, like, hey, look, he's a ninety-five-year-old guy. I wasn't gonna nag him, but eventually he came around, and uh, I'm just so fortunate. And the audio of his interview is like the funniest thing. <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe someday I'll I'll be I'll release it. And he's got a he's got the mouth of a sailor, and some of that got toned down a little bit. Some of the language got cleaned up a little bit, although I didn't want to lose the charm of the way he said things. I say this in the intro, like he literally laughed so hard during the interview sometimes that I thought he was going to die on the phone. He was laughing so hard. He just really enjoyed the experience, which made me just enjoy the experience. And how he came about was literally, I was trying to put together a list Of who I wanted to interview for the potential people to interview for the new book. Partially, I think, because maybe my composer was like, if you're, I mean, my uh, publisher was like, if you're going to do another book, who are you thinking about? And I was sitting there and I'm like, at the time, my computer was facing my DVD and Blu-ray collection. And I was just like looking at them and I was like, burnt offerings. I was like, who scored that movie? And I looked up, I was like, oh. And so I was like, he also he did Dark Shadows, the television show, which I had fond memories of watching as a kid with my mom, and the 90s, like kind of reboot of it. And so once I discovered, like, oh, this guy composed all this stuff, I was like, he's 95 years old? Like, what stories this guy has to have? Hunting him down was almost as tough as hunting down Koji Hendo and Kenji Kuwa. Because, I mean, this guy had retired basically from composing in the 90s. So it's not like... I could call his agent. It wasn't like he was on Facebook or or Twitter. You know, <laughs> hunting him down was tough, but uh, thank God I did. In promoting the first book, I often got the question, what's your favorite interview in the book? And the truth was there really wasn't one because everybody brought something unique to the book and I cherished each experience uh, of interviewing all those people. But when people ask me for the second book, who's your favorite interview in the book? I say, it's Bob Cobert, because I just had such a fun time. Like his laughter was genuinely contagious and we just had such a good time talking and his stories were amazing. And uh, because he's at the time, 30 years older than anybody else I'd interviewed for any other books. Like, his experience was totally unique compared to everybody else's and the way he approached things was different. So I'm glad you brought him up because he is worth mentioning and I'm very proud of his interview and I feel very fortunate that I got to know him and interview him for this book so that people can read his story and and find out about it. And then hopefully go discover the music because the music is great too.
0: The music, the shows and the films as well. I read that one a couple days ago, and, you know, next week I'm going to spend quite a while looking up as much of his music (laughs) as I can because it was so fun to read about. Yeah, yeah.
1: His music is great. And also because, like, his career started before, like, synths in electronic music was, like, budding. So, like, a lot of his, you know, most of his career doesn't have any of that. It's just, like, straight up orchestral. It's old school. And it's so, some of it's so beautiful. And he does... He does a music box theme like no one else. It was like <laughs> so many of his, so many of the movies. I guess Dan Curtis must have had a thing for music boxes because he had so many uh, opportunities to create these beautiful little melodies that start off in music box form and then get worked into the orchestration of these uh, beautiful pieces of music. I'm glad to see that people seem to be responding to that mm-hmm. interview because uh, he is definitely when I say that these books are to promote these composers he's definitely one of those people i'm talking about because like unfortunately he's passed away now and there are people that do cherish his music and know who he is but even for horror movie fans and people who love horror film music i still don't think his name is one that they know they might know some of the music like i know people love trilogy of terror and stuff like that but they don't know that he composed the music for it burnt offerings is another cult classic so yeah thrilled thrilled that he got in the book so blessed to have gotten to know him because he was quite the character even outside of the interview we had some we had many spirited conversations uh until we lost touch and then sadly like I said he passed away earlier this year but uh, the music lives on and so hopefully now the interview does too and uh, people will be able to find out about that music and his life and his career through through the book which is
0: great I hope so too and I I pretty sure that's what's going to happen because it's like i said i didn't know his music or the films or shows that he worked on and yet i found it fascinating and i think there are going to be a lot of people who are in that same position but it's such i mean he's such an interesting character that how can you not read that interview and want to know more and want to know what he did i mean it's yeah you know look not not saying every single person will but (laughs) man if you if you don't what are you doing
1: yeah well that's you know that's the hope like these yeah. guys and girls, they put in so much of themselves into the music and it's a unique part of the collaboration of film making process. It was something I didn't appreciate as much during the first book, but in talking about the first book or even just in conversation outside after the first book was done. But in my experience, every composer that I've met and talked to has been fantastic, nice and generous Interesting, willing to share, willing to give their time. You know, five of the composers came out for a signing for the first book. I've, I've become pretty good friends with some of those guys now since the first book. And I sold the book at a convention in California when I was a California Some of them came out to the convention to support the book. Amazing, generous people. And in thinking about it, I kind of realized in some way, and maybe I'm off base, but I, th- I don't think I am, is that to be a composer in film... You kind of have to leave your ego outside the studio because it's with like theater and film, you're really not composing music for yourself. You're in service to a story. You're in service to the director and the producer. And even though like the composer may feel differently, ultimately, they're kind of a slave to the project. And I just feel like you can't be good at that job if you have an ego about it. And if even if you were good at it, you would be miserable doing it and you wouldn't want to do it for long. And I think that goes into why they're so nice, because I think it takes a certain kind of person to be able to do that job. And I don't think you can be an asshole and do it (laughs) like you kind of have to be of a certain temperament. And be generous because they're lending themselves to these projects. It's like the work has increased and the budgets have gone down. And so they deserve every bit of credit that we can give them, whether it's through interviewing them through a podcast or promoting them through a book or reviewing their albums for websites and stuff. Like, it's one of the most important jobs on a film that they have because in some ways they have to do everything else that the film isn't doing. (laughs) to make it work and it's great that people like us appreciate it and and we ha- we're passionate enough about it to help them tell their stories and help share their knowledge with people that also want to do it but also just promote the fact that these people are amazing and they deserve every bit of credit that we can give them so uh, I, I thank you sir for also joining me on that on that mission
0: you know what i love it though because you have the podcast as well and obviously you're anyone who's checked out either of our podcasts or both of them you Can see they're even though they're both doing composer interviews they're not doing them in different ways but they do have different formats in some ways you know sure yours are basically the most in-depth interviews you can find of these composers and mine are shorter but at the end of the day like they're still basically accomplishing the same objective you know there are other people that do it too but i never view it as a competition that we're both inhabiting this small space and we're competing against one another for like views or attention or anything it's like now we're, we're all in this just like amplifying the interest in film music broadly and these composers and like when i see a new podcast your interview series that's film music focused like I just get happy because all it means is there is more interest in the genre I'm glad that I'm doing it and I'm particularly glad that you're doing it and that you have the book as well it's just more and more for this this space
1: yeah I mean I think the and I write about this a little bit in the introduction to the new book which is like there is like this community of film music fans and we are passionate we're not, we're not many in numbers, but we're passionate about it. And, you know, I think for the most part, we all do kind of recognize that like, this is about promoting the music that we love and the people that create that music. And there isn't, my experience is there isn't a lot of competition. I will be honest and say, sometimes if I see that somebody interviewed somebody that I already interviewed, I might not listen to that interview because I might, I don't want to be mad that I didn't ask that question. <laughs>
0: It's funny because both of us have interviewed Holly Amber Church. Reading your interview with her, anytime there was something that I didn't ask or that came up that I didn't know, I just chalked it up to, I was like, oh, well, Blake's interview was longer, so he, he had more of a chance to ask things, and, and that made me feel fine. <laughs>
1: well, that's that's the thing, but if I go and I there's a shorter interview, and there's something I didn't ask, then I... I. But, uh, you know, that's more about my own insecurities, not about... <laughs> You mentioned that my interviews are, are, are in-depth, and that just came out of, like I said, the, the initial desire to do the first book was purely out of wanting to know things. They, they became in-depth because there was just that much information that I wanted to ask, and they were willing to give it, and they were willing to give that much time. I, the first person I interviewed for the first book was Harry Manfredini, who is best known for the Friday the 13th movie's he asked me, well, how much time do you need? And I was like, I, I don't know, an hour, 45 minutes, an hour? And Harry was like, oh, I'm going to talk way longer than that. <laughs> and I said, okay. And that kind of set the, the bar for the rest of the interviews. But Harry was like, oh, I'm going to talk. You're going to, if you want to talk to me, we're going to talk. And uh, I interviewed him. He was on the West Coast. And so I interviewed him like nine o'clock at night his time. So midnight for me. So we talked until like after two in the morning for me. Jeez. I was exhausted. The next day I interviewed Alan Haworth, which was also like a, a lengthy interview. It was kind of like Harry set the pace. And the amount of information I got from Harry set the pace of like the amount of information I wanted to get out of everybody else. So in some ways, I Harry is very much responsible for how these books turned out. The way I approached the first book interview-wise was like, my goal was to like, like the definitive, like end all be all interview. And some of that had to do with, I, I equate it to like going to a concert. You go see like a Billy Joel show. And even though like, as a fan, I want to hear like the rarities. I recognize that there are people that want to hear Piano Man and and Billy Joel has to deliver Piano Man. When I approached the interviews, it was like, I don't like, he's already said some of this information. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily need to know that information. But I feel like people reading this might want to hear the hits. So, like, they might want to hear about, like, the kick, kid, kid, kid mom, mom. So what I tried to do was, with him particularly, it was like I wanted him to – I wanted to identify that story because I figure some people are going to want to hear that story. He said it before. But then dive deeper into that story. Like, what's behind some of those decisions even more? Now there are people asking them about their work. When I interviewed John Carpenter for the first book – The bulk of that first interview was six months before he even announced that he was going to do a record of non-soundtrack music. So though people had asked him about his music before that, in context of interviews about his career, I don't know if he had ever been interviewed specifically about his music, especially at that length, in that kind of detail. And it's not an incredibly detailed interview. He's not an incredibly detailed guy. Like, he doesn't talk As much as someone like Harry Manfredini does. And because, like, he doesn't consider himself a film composer, like, quite literally, the music in his movies is an afterthought. He doesn't think about the music in the same way that a guy like Harry Manfredini or Christopher Young thinks about it. So he doesn't, I don't necessarily think he has the tools or the language to talk about music in the same way that those guys do, because he doesn't think about it that way. But had a great time talking to him because. I was talking about stuff that I don't think he got got asked about a lot. But then you flash forward, he announces that he's got an album coming out. He does a promotional tour of interviews for that all over the internet, has a second album come out, does a bunch of interviews for that. By that point, because I asked him in the first interview, would you ever think about doing an album that's not soundtrack related? And he was like, no. And then, like six months later, he's got an out. He's announced that he has an album out. <laughs> So I approached his assistant and I was like, "Look, you know, in uh, interest of keeping the book as updated as I can before it goes to press, can I get another like half hour of John's time?" And it was like night and day, where he like loved talking about it in the first interview. That last half hour after he'd done hundreds of interviews for every blog like he was over it by that point i got very lucky with that first interview that like i hit timing was perfect and that like he was still interested in in talking about music
0: makes sense i'm so glad you came on it was such a fun time talking about the book and composers and film music and i'm looking forward to getting through the last couple interviews in the book that i have yet to read Because, look, so far they've all been great.